play the Game of Thrones, you watch Rising or you die. <laughs> <laughs> they were uh, playing the uh, Game of Thrones, some some of the music from the later seasons actually in the studio before you got here today. So I, we're in a I, Game of Thrones mood. I didn't realize they had changed the music halfway through the the series. Not the so not the main theme, but uh, there's some. Some really cool stuff. So the Cersei theme from later, when she blows up everybody, that's a great one. Mm -hmm. The Night King theme, I think that's what they were playing. Mm -hmm. The Night King, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. uh, when the, the the zombie dragon attacks. Spoilers. Sorry, we can't. We, no more spoilers. It's over. It's over. Yeah, I don't think you're gonna spoil a show that wrapped during COVID, right? No, in the last like three years, right? Yeah, it feels like longer ago, but it does. Well, it does. speaking of it. shows, what are we talking about today? Well, on this show, we are talking about the controversy around President Biden's approach to the Maui Flyers. He is getting flamed for his response to those deadly wildfires in Hawaii, with some conservatives calling it his version of Katrina. Biden had this message for the people of Maui. Let's listen. The people of Hawaii, the entire nation is with you as you recover, rebuild, and grieve. You know, as you seek to heal from the loss of family and friends, homes and businesses, and the native Hawaiian history gone forever, but we'll be with you for as long as it takes, I promise you. That's why we took immediate action, surging hundreds of federal personnel, delivering thousands of meals, liters of water, cots, and blankets. On Monday, Jill and I will travel to Hawaii to convey in person our grief and solidarity and commitment to the people of Maui. Already, from the darkness and the smoke and the ash, we've seen the light of hope and strength. First responders working around the clock Many of those first responders are impacted by the fires themselves, losing their own homes. Volunteers delivering aid by fishing boat, ferry, on jet skis. Chefs whose restaurants were destroyed, cooking food for displaced families. As one food bank worker described the resilient spirit that we're seeing, he said, nothing but aloha, that's all you see. That's Hawaii, that's America. And I want the people of Hawaii to know your country's with you as long as it takes. Now, the death toll from the devastation has now reached over 100 people, with many, very many people still missing. Here's island officials on the recovery effort. We have to be respectful because we got one chance to do this. We got one chance to do this right. And with all due respect, we haven't made notifications. And I am not going to say how we found people when I haven't even told their families. How do I do that? You know? Have we found remains that are maybe smaller than other remains? I'm not going to sit here and sensationalize that. But the answer to that is yes. But we haven't, what I'm talking about is children. Okay? So we're going to do this right. I have to, we have to identify them and then notify them. But that's what we're dealing with. I know everybody wants to know, hey, who, who's on that list? But again, we've got one chance to do this right. Investigations now seem to point to a downed power line likely to have started the flames on Maui. But there is still debate on the emergency response and whether quicker action could have been taken to lessen the wreckage. According to the Civil Beat, a state water official delayed the release of water that landowners wanted to help protect their property from fires. According to the report, the water standoff played out over much of the day and the water didn't come until too late, according to sources. The alleged official, M. Kaleo Manuel, 
wanted West Maui land to get permission from a taro or kalo farm lo located downstream from the company's property. Manuel eventually released water, but not until after the fire had spread. It was not clear on Monday how much damage the fire did in the interim or whether homes were damaged. Manuel declined to be interviewed for the Civil Beat story. DLNR's communications office said in an email that it was supporting the state's emergency communications response and unable to facilitate your inquiry at this time. Now, here's a resurfaced video of the alleged official. The commission is responsible per, per our authorizing statute to protect and manage all water resources in the state. One water is like taking it and looking at it from a holistic system perspective. And that's not diff any different than how Hawaiians traditionally manage water. You know, in, in essence, we treated it, a native Hawaiians treated water as one of the earthly manifestations of a god and a kua kane. And so that reverence um, for a resource and that reciprocity in relationship was, was something that was really, really important to our worldview and, and well-being, right? And living in an island in isolated from other, you know, civilizations. Um, and so I think where it shifted to today or over time is that we've become used to looking at water as like something which we use and not necessarily something that we revere as that thing that gives us life, right? I mean, to me, it's a shift in value set. Republican candidate for President Vivek Ramaswamy tweeted in response as wildfires raged, desperate residents petitioned state officials to send more water for firefighting and to help protect their properties from fire. That request went unanswered for hours, withholding critical aid to islanders. Now we're learning that the official who delayed the approval is an Obama Foundation Asia Pacific leader and a climate activist who believed water should be revered first and foremost. Uh, so I am seeing this official coming under a lot of scrutiny right now. Um, there are questions about whether it was actions to use this water to fight the fires were, um, were delayed. And then yeah, that's an old video outlining his philosophy, which some people are reading into that as well. But I think there are some real questions here. It seems there are a lot of failures here. So for one, apparently it's not so unusual that there are wildfires, but part of what is being reported as the cause of why this particular fire was so devastating has to do with the conditions being drier than they have been historically, the fire spreading faster than fires spread historically, uh, and high winds existing at the time, um, as strong as 60 to 81 miles an hour, that happened to be a kind of a, a worst-case scenario, nox noxious mix of things happening at the same time. There was also a failure of the emergency alert system. So yeah. there was a warning system that was supposed to go out that was delayed, didn't actually happen. Um, it, it, it does feel like one of those situations where sometimes you don't know how bad it can be until it actually manifests. But it is concerning because there are organizations, departments, disaster relief organizations that are supposed to be anticipating these kind of issues. And if there have been multiple fires, some of which have been caused similarly by downed power lines, there is a question as to whether or not they had the support to fix these infrastructural problems and guard against them, because certainly events like this were not completely unforeseen or unforeseeable. Right. 
Right. Um, I mean, after you know, after the dust settles, um, obviously, if there were institutional failures, if there were organizational failures, they need to be fixed, and people need to be um, held accountable uh, because this is just. The, I mean, the devastation here is vast, and there actually there's a lot of lost lives. I'm sure yeah. we're. I'm sure it's not just 100 people. I'm sure we're going to hear about um, more lost lives. But um, yeah, it looks obviously. You know, conservatives are criticizing this official based on the video we've just seen. But I'm, I'm also just. I'm seeing just. Reporting also just from newspapers and um, the Honolulu Star Advertiser, others pointing to this this letter from an official um, saying it was the release of the water was delayed, and that could be a very very damning detail here. Yeah, that's it's it's horrible to think that any of this could have been preventable. I mean, look, there's a there's a bigger conversation to be had here about whether or not. As a community, we're willing to invest in infrastructure, even though the benefits of it aren't necessarily apparent at first. You know, one might scoff at the idea of throwing a lot of money at addressing this power line issue or fixing the levees uh, in uh, New Orleans pre-Katrina or addressing uh, all of the 70-year-old bridges and tunnels that we have in our country that were built in the New Deal era, and that was part of what Biden's infrastructure plan was supposed to go toward. And that received so much pushback. Even something like infrastructure, which was supposed to be such a bipartisan effort, had so many Republicans who weren't, will weren't willing to go along with it because it was a Biden plan. And the thing about these kinds of projects is it's not immediately apparent that it's doing Mm -hmm. something for the people, right? You go to work every day, you drive over a bridge, you don't have a sense of how strong or weak the bridge is. And the idea that they spent millions of dollars on a bridge and it looks the same as it did from your lay eye as it did before can seem like it's wasteful until you're the one who was on that Philadelphia bridge recently that collapsed, or you're the one who had your entire life burned down in the context of one of these fires, or you're the one who had your house flooded by um, the levees breaking in, uh, in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And so I think, you know, it's, it's worth having conversations about th this kind of preventative infrastructure work, investing in our own country, um, the same way that we have, you know, conversations about preventative health care, and RFK Jr. has been talking a lot about that, and how not doing that is a burden on our, on our health care system as well. So mm -hmm. we'll continue to bring you coverage as we learn more about the causes of this fire and, regrettably, the growing death toll. But stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Robbie, I hear you were extra industrious last night and you wrote a radar. What's on your mind these days? I did indeed. Well, Brianna, a new study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association purports to track the spread of COVID-19 misinformation during the course of the pandemic and largely blames 52 specific doctors for promoting allegedly incorrect claims about the virus, about masks, and about vaccines. The authors of that study, which is called Communication of COVID-19 Misinformation on Social Media by Physicians in the U.S., well, they might need to double-check their own grasp of the facts <laughs> because several statements that they describe as examples of misinformation are actually debatable, and one big claim cannot possibly be described as misinformation at all. I refer, of course, unsurprisingly, to the lab leak theory. Statements counted as misinformation in this study included the notion that, quote, the virus originated in a laboratory in China. As if anticipating strenuous objection to this, the authors weakly insist that the lab leak theory, quote, contradicted scientific evidence at the time. Hmm. 
Well, this gets to the very root of the whole misinformation problem. There was no smoking gun indicating either a natural origin or a lab leak, and yet a group of scientific experts released a paper, Proximal Origins, at the behest of federal health czars Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins that explicitly ruled out a lab leak despite their own private concerns that this was a perfectly compelling explanation. Scientists who publicly lean toward the lab leak theory, including Alina Chan, who we've had on the show of MIT and Harvard, were condemned. The lab leak theory did not contradict scientific evidence at the time. It just didn't. The evidence was ambiguous, and some scientists preferred the lab leak, while others preferred natural origin. In any case, a scientific study released today, in August 2023, no excuse for continuing to promote the fiction that the lab leak theory is misinformation. The theory is now endorsed by both the U.S. Department of Energy and the FBI. The Wall Street Journal has confirmed key reporting that would make the lab leak all but certain, namely that the first people to contract COVID-19 were scientists working at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So-called experts who purport to chronicle and correct the category of speech now known as misinformation have proven themselves more than capable of error, which calls into question their entire project. And the authors, by the way, did not respond to my request for comment. Falsely describing the lab leak theory as misinformation, however, is not the paper's only sin. The authors also make dubious claims about masks and mandates. So they cite as misinformation, quote, allegations of consequences of mask wearing, including medical and social or developmental effects, all of which were unfounded. All of which were unfounded. That's what they say. Quote, many physicians focused on negative consequences related to children and mask mandates in schools, claiming that masks interfered with social development despite lack of evidence, wrote the authors. Hmm. That's just simply untrue, that masking children has no negative consequences whatsoever for their development. Strong claim. <laughs> As Brown University's Emily Oster noted when she wrote about this, there is direct evidence that masks make it difficult to hear the speaker and that this may be exacerbated for kids in loud classrooms. It stands to some logic that if you're trying to teach a young child to read or really do anything, it is valuable for them to be able to hear you. And social interactions are better if kids can hear each other and be heard by teachers putting all this together. It is reasonable to think that some aspects of learning or social skills may be impacted by mass, and indeed others have argued this. Well, these misinformation cops disagree. The paper, by the way, also takes issue with the claim that mass mandates were ineffective at stopping the spread of COVID-19, even though some studies did in fact cast doubt on whether mandates, not masks themselves, but the mandates requiring them, were doing much additional good. Lastly, the authors explicitly denounce, as a conspiracy theory, the idea that health officials, quote, censored information that challenged government messaging. The Facebook files and the Twitter files have documented exhaustively all the ways in which the federal government pressured social media companies to do precisely that. So understanding how false information spreads on social media is a worthwhile project. The authors of this paper don't seem to grasp that there are legitimate disagreements on a whole host of policy issues relating to COVID-19. The science is not settled, and it never is. Those who would seek to police misinformation should first define it accurately, or else they're committing the very same mistake they seek to correct. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I saw people taking legitimate shots at this particular write-up. I mean, if you're going to go out of your way to do a piece on misinformation and the best evidence you have of it are these really disputed claims that now, with the passage of time especially, seem to militate in favor of those who are considered to be misinformationists of the internet, <laughs> right. then then you haven't done a very good job. Now, I certainly do think there was 
a bunch of wrong stuff that was said at the time sure. that has gotten largely memory hold. And if you really wanted to do an article about that, you could. But the problem is that stuff has gone the way of the dinosaur. People aren't still harping on the claims that were found to be unsubstantiated and wrong. They have been focused on those things which were ended up being validated by time, history, and science, but which were characterized so uncharitably in the beginning during a time of genuine you know, confusion or trying to get to the bottom of something as the pandemic had first occurred. And why liberals are still caught up in this space, I really don't know, especially because there's still, I think, a lot of legitimate arguments to be had about whether or not, okay, so here are the risks. To your point, you say there are you know, understandable risks of masking and learning how to communicate and read and things, especially uh, as ch children are young and developmentally naive. Sure. But that's weighed out. That's you have to balance that against the potential sure. risks of infection. It's not usually not so bad in children, but an unknown virus, long COVID, all of these kinds of things. And at least having an honest conversation about the real risks that exist on both sides, however great or minor you think they are, it feels like a more approachable conversation, a good faith conversation, in a way that simply lying about it doesn't. Same with the myocarditis stuff. I think a much stronger argument would be, well, there are similar heart risks to young people that can happen rarely, but sometimes if you have COVID, you're not vaccinated, it's bad and you get hospitalized. Similarly, there are these risks that can happen from vac uh, vaccination, particularly in this group of young men. So let's just get our heads together, compare the scientific studies and enable people to make informed decisions based on who they are, what their biology, biological background is and all of these kinds of things. And instead we just got anybody who's talking about myocarditis is a kook and lying and doesn't understand the science. And that has done irreparable damage, hopefully not irreparable, but very significant damage to the public trust. Yeah, the, the people who purport to specialize in misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, who are you know journalists for which that's their beat, or who are national security experts or health experts with a focus on that, or for, uh, tracking it online, a group, groups that watch it, they increasingly refer to this category of speech in a way that is just baffling to me, like like that misinformation is itself a kind of virus, a kind of mm -hmm. disease that is like communicable and easily spread. Mm -hmm. And with, with no um, with, with no like self-awareness or understanding that a lot of what they're describing as misinformation, right, ha is debatable or is as right, as you just said, is just competing claims like, well, you know, maybe one person might think despite the mass being uncomfortable and not ideal for children, it's still worth doing it for these reasons. And someone else may say it's not worth doing it for these reasons. Well, especially if your it's child is immunocompromised, right. has asthma, has other kinds of things. But, if but you they're don't just the saying full it's picture, not, yeah. it's not, no, it's just misinformation. And again, <laughs> with things that are just totally out of date now. Yeah. Now, there were, I don't want to, again, I don't want to memory hold the fact that there were people who were saying for purely political reasons, I'm not going to take this vaccine, yeah. um, you know, who were ignoring the fact that there were these very high rates of, ho relatively uh, to, compared to what we have now, high rates of hospitalization and death that were coming when people got COVID without having any layer of vaccine protection or having the protection of having had the disease initially. Right, which is another. Right. And that's a mainstream misinformation because right. there was so much unwillingness to embrace um, by Fauci and others that um, having had COVID would 
would confer on you some degree of protection from a subsequent I infection. And that was that was downplayed or even, even frankly, it was denied yeah. in, in uh, mainstream reporting based on what government health sciences were saying. But that never counts as a yeah. misinformation. It's only when we do it. Right. And I just saw a study that showed that if you ask um, conservatives how they feel about uh, certain early COVID policies, uh, mandates, et cetera, they are very negative about them. But if you call it Trump policies, the Trump mandates, et cetera, <laughs> well, the, the opinion goes sure. up. And so to me, you know, that's not tethered to science or any kind of sure. empiricism. That is politics. And I don't want to pretend that there wasn't a lot of politicking going on in the time, including people like Kamala Harris and liberals who were saying, well, if it's Trump's vaccine, I don't want to take it. Right. So that is part of, I think, why there was a genuine investment in the Peter idea Hotez. of <laughs> the same thing. Everyone's right. favorite mainstream COVID commentator when right. it was the Trump vaccine. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. So, so that's why I understand why some people were looking for something mm -hmm empirical, something true, something like science that they could hang their hat on, because there were people making wild decisions that were not well-tailored to even good-faith public health advice at the time. However, two wrongs don't make a right, and now we're having to contend with all of those years of flip-flopping advice on masks and incomplete advice on things like masks and which ones work and which ones don't, and how protective having had COVID really is versus isn't. And, and we're still digging us that, ourselves out of that hole. Well, that claim that it's a, it's a conspiracy theory that the government took actions, or the you know, health, government health advisors took actions to, um, to discourage uh, narratives that clash with them. Like, it's just not, it's right. just not a conspiracy theory. Yeah. I mean, there are people saying that was true, that was good action that should be done and should be done again, but you can't deny that it happened. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, well, we will see if these authors ever respond to the numerous criticisms they were getting from me and from other people on social media, and we'll have more rising right after this. This just in, Republican Georgia State Senator Colton Moore is moving to impeach Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis for her actions against former President Trump, Donald Trump. Moore said in a statement, I'm not going to sit back and watch as radical left prosecutors weaponize their elected offices to politically target their opponents. As a Georgia state senator, I am officially calling for an emergency session to review the actions of Fannie Willis. Meanwhile, Scott McAfee, McAfee has been assigned to preside over Donald Trump's case in Georgia. Hailing from the Peach State, the 34-year-old was given the Herculean task of overseeing the blockbuster trial against Trump and his 18 co-defendants after only having occupied the bench for six months. Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp appointed McAfee back in 2021, and in February of this year, he became a Fulton County Superior Court judge. And though he's new to the bench, his lengthy resume boasts having been a prosecutor and state inspector general in the state. And while all eyes will be on Georgia the next few months, Arizona could be next in line to indict Trump. According to Fox 10 Phoenix, former governors Jan Brewer and Doug Ducey, both Republicans, expect that this could happen, especially because of a video showing fake electors signing false electoral college documents declaring Trump the winner of the 2020 election. Documents in Trump's Georgia indictment make several references to these events in Arizona, which prosecutors used to help support a racketeering charge. So a couple things to process. Obviously, the, I don't think the impeachment of the prosecutor is going to go um, anywhere. This judge, people are just kind of noting that he's relatively, I mean, he, by all, not just relatively, he is young. He's new to the bench, um, 34. I remember last week when I was a wee 34-year-old. 
Um, so there's that. And uh, but it, everybody says he's a very professional, knowledgeable person. Um, yeah. So people will make hay out of these um, uh, judge selections one way or the other. Uh, in most cases, and in certainly in this case, he was randomly assigned. He was a Brian Kemp appointee, which in yesteryear would mean that, okay, he's a Republican guy, what's there to be mad at? But in a world where there are two Republican parties and Brian Kemp is on the wrong side of the Republican Party to many folks because he um, has committed the crime of believing that Biden uh, duly won the 2020 election, uh, I think there are conservatives who are frustrated that he is the one overseeing this case. I also saw some folks noted there was a New York Times story, in fact, that noted that he once worked under Fonnie Willis, which is understandable given that he previously worked as a prosecutor in the state. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, people want to see conspiracies everywhere. I don't know that there is one here. I think the conspiracy people should be keeping their eye on is the one that Trump is alleged to have engaged in with 18 co-conspirators, where he endeavored to get uh, Republicans across the country to sign on to fake slates of electors. So the Georgia indictment does make reference to events in Arizona. So everybody's wondering if Arizona will be next, the next shoe to drop. Um, what's interesting about the situation in Arizona is that um, so the, such a case would be brought by the attorney general of Arizona, who is a Democrat, because the Democrat won in in the midterms in 2022. Remember, in this Arizona race where Republicans— Are you sure, Robbie? <laughs> where Just Republicans kidding. blew, you know, <laughs> were widely expected yeah. to, to have a better time than they did, and their governor candidate, Carrie Lake, lost, yeah. their Senate candidate, Blake Masters, lost, their attorney general candidate, Abraham Hamada, lost. Um, it, those three individuals leaned very aggressively. You know, they were they were endorsed by Trump. They were Trump, they courted Trump. They had Trump's approval because they were very much leaning into the stolen election stuff, which lost them. In, you know, in a state that elects a lot of Republicans generally, um, the attorney general in particular has not been that office has not been held by a Democrat since 2006, and the Republican candidate in 2022 lost by 510 votes, mm. just 510 votes. So there would be there would be no indictment of Trump if that office was held by a Republican or by this Republican. And so it's, it's, it's another example of Trump kind of like shooting himself in the foot because these candidates all lost. And yeah. if, if, like, this guy had gotten 511 more votes, there would definitely be no indictment in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a—it does feel—I mean, this is very subjective, obviously, but that in the past few weeks since these last two indictments um, that are relating specifically to the issue of the um, uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, that there has been a shift. We're seeing that— um, Polls are all over the place. New There's a new New Hampshire poll that shows that um, uh, people. I think Tim Scott is even ahead of Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire. He's spending a lot of money in the state, so that might not be indic mm -hmm. indicative of anything more than just having exposure. Chris Christie um, was uh, up Chris in Christie, some poll. I, I think just that was saw. the same New Hampshire poll. Well, DeSantis uh, is putting everything into Iowa right now. That's his. Uh, he's spending a lot of time there. Um, you know, you see, I, I've seen reporting, even mainstream reporting, that he's. You know that he's hitting his stride and it's his he's resonating with people. Um, Polling haven't necessarily borne that out yet, but you never know. Yeah, but the point I'm making is that it feels as though there's a little bit of a loosening of a grip on the Republican candidates feeling the need to have such a fidelity to the Donald Trump stole the election narrative, and the public as a whole, the Republican base feeling the need to 
defend every action here. And I do think it's because these cases are resurfacing the aspects of the alleged conspiracy that are so much more compelling than the idea that a guy with horns on his head entering into Congress was independently going to change the outcome of the election. I mean, you're getting the kind of stories like the ones that come that came out of your home state in Michigan, where the the Republicans picked to put forward the slate of electors, the fake slate of electors there, because of state rules that require the uh, uh, electors to be certified in the state house. I believe there was like a plot to stay overnight and to hide in the building. I mean, stuff that obviously evinces an understanding that they were being doing something illegal and wrong, and that they had to hide and literally, in the cover of night, put together these documents. Allegedly, according to these indictments, at the direction of Donald Trump, um, Eastman, and the rest of these co-conspirators. So once you're talking in those terms, that Donald Trump was literally plotting with Republicans in these seven states around the country to create confusion with these documents that will enable them to shift the election results from the people in the states across America to the House of Representatives, who could then hand it over to Donald Trump, it seems like a lot, a lot more than just, I don't like Donald Trump, yeah, and I, I think that he's doing an insurrection. I mean, there's still people, Carrie Lake, I saw tweeting the other day, uh, yesterday, calling for all the other Republicans to drop out in solidarity with Donald Trump. That's a sentiment I see a lot. Um, so, you know, pointing to the polling numbers and saying it's over. Tr Trump's up, like, 35 or 40 points right now. It's interesting to compare to previous campaign cycles. So at this point in 2015, Trump was also ahead. He was only ahead by like 10 points, and he <laughs> eventually got the nomination. In uh, in in the uh, Romney election, at this point in the campaign, Romney was also in the had front runner status by about 10 points. But in the in the um, 2008 election, at at this point, so in 2007. Um, Rudy Giuliani was mm -hmm. leading right now. He was about 10 points ahead of everybody else. And obviously, John McCain eventually became the nominee. So it well, is he managed not to do, <laughs> uh, Even though he lost that election, he managed to do some really important things with his career, including becoming one of the uh, indicted co-conspirators in this case against Donald Trump. Uh, he became Donald Trump's core legal team after all of the lawyers in the Justice Department um, were rejected by Trump for telling him repeatedly that he had lost the election, and he kept doing forum shopping, allegedly, to find uh, an attorney that would agree with him. He eventually found one in Rudy Giuliani, and now they are sharing responsibility for uh, these alleged crimes. There was a story, I think, that came out yesterday about Rudy Giuliani seeking support with his legal fees from Donald Trump, given that he ostensibly put himself on the line to help him get elected. Yeah, Trump has and not Trump been particularly interested in paying those. Is not generous. And so here's the thing. Donald Trump, I, I wonder if the public will start to see Donald Trump differently. And if I were the Democrats, instead of kind of <laughs> dancing on Trump's grave the way that Hillary Clinton did, I would try to frame it this way. Donald Trump misrepresented the status of the 2020 election to his supporters. He told them to come to the Capitol, where some of them broke the law and committed crimes that they're now having to serve time for, while he gets off innocently. People really believed him when he said that they were doing something noble, just, and would be protected if they fought for what Trump said was true, which is that he had rightfully won the election. And now Donald Trump has led all these other less sympathetic people, I would argue, because they are rich and powerful and should have been able to use their own reasoning skills, but folks like Rudy Giuliani, who who is also hanging out to dry. So there's a, a question before the American people, which is, do they believe that Donald Trump, based on his behavior, wouldn't do the same to them when he's in the role of having to protect them and in their interests as the leader of the United States of America? Well, we will see.
We'll continue following the 2024 presidential race, and we'll have more rising right after this. Conservative commentator Glenn Beck's show was pulled from Apple Podcasts on Wednesday, which, according to him, was done with no prior warning or explanation. But now Apple is saying it was just a trademark issue after restoring the episodes. Hmm. Well, in a video posted on X, formerly Twitter, Beck said Apple simply cited that they found an issue in his program and that it had to be resolved before it could be available. He slammed that decision. Let's watch. This is absolutely uh, freedom of speech. There's nothing that we have said that would warrant any removal. Um, again, it's probably just a glitch. But it's amazing how we have to have a whole bunch of people point out the glitch before the glitch is found and it's put back. Um, man, this is, uh, this is huge. Um, we, well, I'm getting ready to do the show for, or rehearse the show for tonight. Uh, tonight's a really important, maybe that's what it is. Is they, are they just, maybe they're just smoked because, uh, you know, I'm pointing out the real crime family tonight on Blaze TV. This is why it's so important to get Blaze TV, because um, we're not playing this game. We don't censor. We don't censor anybody. And out of all the shows, my show is the one to get nailed. As we noted, Apple does appear to have reinstated the Glenn Beck show. As of this morning, the entire program is available once again with latest episodes titled Trump versus Biden, which is the real crime family. So I, I saw a lot of, um, of outrage on social media about this, saying this is you know, another example of big tech censorship. I think J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley weighing in in that way. Um, look, there are a lot of uh, censorship decisions being made on platforms that I don't agree with, some of them even done at government behest. Um, Apple says this was a trademark issue, mm -hmm. and I, I just scanned through like the recent episodes, and I don't know, this is my theory, but I would bet you it's because of this clip. Let's play it. Mm -hmm. We've known each other a long time. I can't remember the last time you invited me out for So a he's doing a Don Corleone impression. I like Glenn Beck. I don't think this is the greatest Don Corleone <laughs> impression I've ever heard. I love the little cat. The little cat edition is fantastic. Um, that music in the background you're hearing, yeah. I bet that was uh, the, the copyright violation. And you know, for for those watching at home, this is an issue that every that all content creators deal with on platforms uh, for for images and for music in particular. Like sometimes we want to play footage of stuff, video stuff, but we can't play it because it's unclear who has the right. This is actually a field of you know, copyright that is, it's, it's not clearly been adjudicated. So obviously, like there's a lot of stuff I think counts as fair use that we can use, but it's like, why take the risk? Mm -hmm. um, because the person who owns the right to that sound or image might sue you over it. And even if you're ultimately right and a court would say, yeah, you get to use it, it's fair use, you don't want to go through that litigation. You, you'd have, you actually have to pay people to like pay off people to stop complaining about it. Um, this is an issue a lot of publications run into. You know, if you, we have a parent company, they don't want to deal with that. Uh, I mean, they've got armies of sure. lawyers, but they, we do training on exactly what kind of sound we use. You still screw it up every now and then. My bet is it's that. Just so, my guess. You know, that seems very plausible to me, especially in a world where 
you know, Joe Rogan has the most successful podcasts in America and was offered millions of dollars to have an exclusive deal with Spotify. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that a disinterest in a certain kind of content is driving decisions as opposed to just popularity and the ability of these corporations to make money off of folks, including Apple making money off of someone who's very popular like Glenn Beck. So I am inclined to think that, yes, this was a copyright issue. My question to you is, do you, are you concerned at all whether it diminishes legitimate speech issues um, for someone like Glenn Beck to perhaps exploit the glitch here and reframe it as a, quote, huge free speech issues and, of course, why you need to subscribe to a show and pay him more money, mm. when there are other significant free speech violations going on, for example, I know that Reason recently covered the story of the Kansas newspaper that had, like, the entire local police department um, search it, take, take computers, documents, um, literally, like, commandeer an entire newsroom um, with the arm of the state. You know, are you concerned at all about the way that free speech obviously has this purchase in a certain segment of the population? You know, understandably so, it is a really important issue, but that it does seem to get exploited in instances that aren't necessarily what I would call to be the biggest free speech issues of the day, or even perhaps well, free spe speech issues at all. I mean, I can understand people being a little, um, for, for, I can understand content creators be, having a knee-jerk um, reaction to being yanked off platforms. I've, I've reacted that way when my content has been taken down on by YouTube and by Facebook, which has happened a couple times. You know, I've I've gone full Karen. I've gone. I need to speak to the manager. Why did you do this? And uh, and I thought it was BS and argued that it was the case. And with the case with Facebook, it got reversed very quickly. Um, the YouTube case, infamously, we you know fought that one tooth and nail, but we they wouldn't reverse it. Um, is it no? Is it as consequential as what you described, which was that was the actual government coming in? I think to the this newspaper headquarters and taking stuff, and I think the the, the lady, the editor, actually died as a result of mm. the stress. Um, of course, that's that's more weighty, sure. But you know, people can be. Um, outraged about multiple things. If you're saying that people who are so mad about online censorship don't, you know, talk about the more garden variety censorship of the, the, the government actually directly arresting people for speech and they should do that more, that's fair enough, but, you know. I mean, also, uh, there has I mean, also, I would trend. also say that mainstream liberals who ostensibly are support the First Amendment and don't like censorship should, you know, be, be a little bit more, um, I don't know if this is still the case. There was an era of just patly dismissing all of the claims that conservatives, contrarians, leftists, et cetera, had about shadow banning and, and maybe what's going on online. And there was just like a pat dismissal of that from liberals um, that was not, I think, useful. Sure. But I, I, th I think the trend that I'm identifying is not just kind of rhetorically on the internet, but substantively at the Supreme Court level, the First Amendment has been expanded in its application to preclude what have historically been considered to be democratic rights and privileges. So I think the most significant example is in Citizens United, where speech is the justification for undermining what we previously believed to be 
limits on unfettered spending that were supposed to be protective of democracy, which is a principle the Founding Fathers spoke directly to, right? The idea of one man, one vote would need to be protected by not allowing there to be this aggregation of extreme wealth that could be used to subvert our democratic political processes. It's part of why the original corporation was time-limited, I think, to 20 years. So the government says, well, we understand that there are instances where you're going to need to raise large amounts of money to build roads and bridges and infrastructure and things that the government isn't necessarily going to do in every instance as this new country is growing and expanding. But we're concerned about being able to grow large pots of money outside of the government in this way. So we're going to term limit how long the corporate your, your corporate license is going to actually last. And so they they understood this. They considered this. And now we're in a situation where I think conservatives have really understood that they can effectively pursue policy like getting rid of campaign finance regulations by wrapping these as up as speech issues. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about whether or not we're going to hit a wall where either there was a kind of boy who cried wolf feeling about people who talk about free speech because of instances like this Glenn Beck instance, potentially, assuming, of course, that it is about the copyright and not genuinely targeting him for his beliefs. Or alternatively, if you're going to get court cases that characterize everything as a speech issue to such an extent that people stop caring. You know, and what is that going to do to legitimate speech issues like um, advocating for the freedom of Julian Assange if you've basically neutered people from having an instinct to want to say, yes, this is an important issue because it seems like so many people have been weaponizing it in bad faith? Um, there's a lot there. <laughs> I mean, well, we're going to the founders, their view of, you know, the First Amendment was just that it applies to Congress, right? They, they, they were not—yes, I don't know that they would have necessarily envisioned—I mean, they wouldn't have even envisioned a lot of these um, protections for anything expanded to state issues or other—like, they literally only thought this was going to apply—this was going to constrain the federal government and Congress's behavior. I mean, they wouldn't have— conceived of all the various agencies, government agencies we have at every level, state, local, and federal, you know, so we're, we're trying to retrofit what they wrote to apply to a lot of situations they wouldn't have necessarily envisioned. Yeah, but I they, certainly agree that they, that's not the best way to go about designing our well, society, but I'm trying but, to play by Republicans' rules, who very much try to root their um, I mean, I know how you feel about, the, about Citizens United and the campaign finance agenda. I mean, this is not—this was not— just a like a fringe right wing view that money should be speech. I know as well. it's a mainstream right wing view. Well, it's it was the ACLU's view as well at the time. Right. Um. <laughs> that's that's a, not entirely entirely accurate. There were specific facts of the case that were were, were what they were. Right. But they the, were trying to prevent someone from releasing a documentary about Hillary right. Clinton. Right. But the question about whether or not the broad public actually wants there to be unlimited spending in the way that Citizens United allowed is not one that's up for debate. Most people are very much frustrated with the fact that there is, according to that Princeton study in 2014 that I'm always referencing, not a democracy anymore because the thing that is directing what Congress chooses to do is corporate spending, lobbyist money, and not at all the will of the people that ostensibly are participating in this democracy. So I'm just, I'm just raising it as I think that is I'm watching this trend, and I'm curious about where it's going to go. And I wonder if there is going to be any pushback at a certain point, because we, arguably we're getting to a point where if everything is a free speech issue, if, if Donald Trump doing fraud, document fraud, and trying to pressure people to change election results and all of that is being characterized as free speech, 
is it eventually going to lose its potency? And is that kind of a bad thing? Because there are real free speech issues afoot that we should be focused on. Well, sure, but we just some we disagree about what those are, right? A lot of people of my persuasion think that being able to spend um, your money for political advocacy is also a form of speech and should be protected, just like the right of the newspaper people who had their you know door banged down by police and their stuff confiscated or whatever else happened in that case just like um, you know when the right when Apple takes you takes down your podcast that's not a free speech issue if they did it because um, I mean I, I guess to the extent copyright is a free speech issue I actually think copyright is probably way too zealously guarded and actually is kind of a free speech issue and should the category should be slightly done away with but uh, but uh, now if, if the government encourages or makes Apple take down your podcast then maybe it's a First Amendment issue so these are Things that are going to be um, adjudicated over time, I yeah, guess. Indeed. More rising right after this. There's new reporting on Fire Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George, who was investigating Jeffrey Epstein-related cases until last December, when she was let go days after suing J.P. Morgan Chase about alleged Epstein abuse. New filings show that in 2019, Virgin Islands Governor Albert Bryan lobbied George to issue a special waiver to the territory's sex offender law so that Jeffrey Epstein could travel freely. Regarding the request, George said, just the fact that he, as a sex offender, got the governor to come to me for that request, unusual. Now, according to reporting from investigative journalist Lee Fong, in the filings, George said, because not every sexual offender or any person, you know, are in the position to have the governor make the request to the attorney general rather than just coming and making it on their own directly to the attorney general, that by itself indicated to me that he was flexing his political influence over or with the governor in an effort to get a favorable result. Now, George ultimately denied the waiver. Investigative journalist Lee Fong joins us now to discuss his reporting on this matter. Nice to see you, Lee. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, we are fascinated, Brianna and I, by this situation, this um, island where Jeffrey Epstein seemed to have access to all levels of political um, influence. Uh, tell us more about you know what his goal would have been here with the the, the so he would be not on the registry or have less restrictions on how he could travel. Yeah, that's right. You know, here uh, in the mainland U.S., we kind of the press has tended to focus on. Epstein's high-level connections to famous bankers and politicians, um, other, other elites, academics. Uh, but, you know, there's another side to this Epstein scandal that is entirely focused on his uh, influence within the Virgin Islands. You know, after uh, his conviction for child prostitution charges in 2008 in Florida, uh, Epstein moved his parole to the Virgin Islands. He really kind of focused his political influence in the Virgin Islands, perhaps because he believed he could more easily manipulate the process in this very small territory. He donated uh, large amounts to various political figures. He really kind of bought huge amounts of political power within the upper echelons of the Virgin Islands government. And, you know, uh, this story is, is, I think, very interesting because, you know, as we've had this ongoing litigation between the Virgin Islands and J.P. Morgan, we just see uh, disclosure after disclosure showing Epstein's uh, control over the top kind of uh, political power brokers on the islands. So um, the, the latest uh, legal filings posted this month or this week, excuse me, 
uh, show that Epstein really had a direct line in shaping even the law, the sex offender law that was passed in the Virgin Islands in 2012. As the Virgin Islands was updating its sex offender law to comply with federal standards in terms of uh, notifying other states when he when sex offenders uh, were traveling, um, placing some restrictions on travel, uh, other disclosure requirements. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, had his lawyers and lobbyists actually draft amendments to that law, uh, create an exemption to that law that, that was wholly written by by his team, uh, had them. Uh, moved those amendments to the legislature, to the governor, and had them word for word, uh, some of these, these proposed changes uh, inserted into the law. And what did those changes do? Well, one of the main changes were uh, giving the power to the attorney general of the Virgin Islands to issue a special waiver, uh, allowing, uh, you know, waiving of a 21-day notification period, uh, making it so you did not have to notify officials of travel in person. You could just do it over email. Um, really allowing Epstein to just come and go as he pleased, uh, uh, you know, unlike sex, sex offenders in other states. And Epstein was able to win uh, these changes to the law and then use his political influence uh, with the governor's office in the Virgin Islands. The governor appoints the attorney general. And we had uh, you know, attorney general after attorney general granting these huge waivers, you know, allowing Epstein to do basically whatever he wanted. Um, that finally changed in 2019. Uh, when a new attorney general came to the office, Denise George, uh, she refused the waiver. And, and as we see in this new disclosure filed this week, uh, she pushed back. She was uh, upset when, when she was demanded, when she was asked to issue the waiver, she fought back against the governor. She, she saw it as an improper uh, level of influence from Epstein over the governor. She later fought with Epstein's lawyers. Uh, she she uh, re refused to issue it. A few months after that, uh, Epstein was arrested and then uh, put into the jail cell in which he died in, in 2019. Yeah, and I, I just I do want to be clear because I, I know from doing you know some reporting on uh, teen school education issues that sex offender list is extremely restricted. You know, some people we we always imagine it's all Jeffrey Epstein type people on it, and I'm sure there are plenty of those. You know, there are also. 16-year-old and a 17-year-old um, did something inappropriate, and the 17-year-old's on the list, or like urinating in public or something like that, or even people who committed serious crimes and then, you know, served years and years in prison and then are released and have a lot of restrictions on their movement. A lot of those people end up homeless because there's like literally nowhere they're zoned to be able to live because of the registry. So I think there are some issues, in, in my view, there are some serious civil liberties concerns with these registries in general. But it's um, it's amazing. It's a scandal that like the one person who can get out of that is is the one who committed the most vicious and heinous of all the sexual crimes over and over again. No, I, I agree with you, Robbie. There are issues with the law. But here is a tier one sex offender, someone who was uh, convicted of child prostitution charges, uh, who had this is also an equal justice, you know, uh, access to the law issue. Here's someone who actually could rewrite the laws through his own through his own checkbook, uh, buying off legislators, you know, uh, even doing the kind of the old school Tammany Hall thing. Uh, the, the records show that Epstein would buy turkeys for uh, the local legislators to give out. Uh, he would he would ask the governor, you know, which charities do you want me to donate to? I'll give it to the, you know, the little league team, the the volleyball team, what have you. Uh, giving it to schools, you know, just cutting checks to super PACs, giving the twenty five thousand dollars here and there to inauguration parties, uh, putting the uh, governor's uh, wife 
the former governor de young on his payroll to be his personal lobbyist and then paying the tuition for the governor's uh, uh, children to, to go to school I mean, his level of influence was vast uh, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars per year on this type of thing and he was able to win uh, very specific changes in Virgin Islands policy uh, one on um, some of these uh, tax benefits that he won for his company, but also in terms of literally changing the sex offender law for himself. So Denise George seems to be an outlier here in the Virgin Islands as someone who was willing to go after Epstein, who rejected the cha these changes to the law that he had advocated for and frankly written, um, who had recently secured a $105 million settlement from the estate of Jeffrey Epstein um, last year when she was then suddenly terminated, I think around January or the very, maybe the very end of last year. At the time, my understanding is that her office basically offered no comment as to the, the circumstances of her being terminated. Do we know anything more about that and how much evidence there is in this what, that this was any kind of um, either uh, a retaliation for her successful prosecution of Epstein or concern that her successes in this regard would continue to unpack somewhat unflattering information uh, about the relationship between U.S. Virgin Islands officials and Epstein himself? Look, um, we don't know the full picture. Here's what we do know. Uh, on New Year's Eve last year, Governor Bryan kind of unceremoniously surpri surprised everyone by firing Denise George. She had really aggressively led the, the investigation and prosecution of Epstein-related cases, you know, uh, investigating and prosecuting his estate, going after some of these other actors, uh, filing that lawsuit against J.P. Morgan that's now unfolding in, in federal court. And suddenly, Governor Bryan fires her. I mean, and you, you look at the press around that time, some of the social media chatter in the Virgin Islands and here in the U.S., in, in the mainland U.S., you, you see uh, a lot of suspicion that this was related to her aggressive drive on Epstein-related cases. And uh, now we see this deposition taken uh, last month and reported uh, for the first time uh, yesterday uh, that she faced... Uh, a very unusual pressure uh, campaign from Governor Bryan to, to give leeway to Epstein um, in 2019. And so it's clear that there was some sort of tension around how much influence Epstein had over this governor. And in, in fact, uh, because of her lawsuit filed against J.P. Morgan and J.P. Morgan's counterclaims, uh, we, we're seeing more and more disclosures around how much uh, power Epstein had over this governor who fired her. Um, you, you see emails now coming out in the litigation uh, with Cecil DeYoung, the former lobbyist for Epstein, uh, connecting uh, the pair, uh, offering Epstein ways to influence the governor, uh, basically forwarding on messages from him saying that he wants more money for his various charity causes or you know, more money for his uh, political party. Um, there was a, a close tie here that perhaps the governor did not want to disclose, and he knew that this type of litigation and investigative drive uh, from Denise George would have revealed his own connections uh, to this convicted, convicted sex offender. Mm, incredible. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for staying on top of this. Uh, we look forward to talking with it, you, talking about it with you more in the future. Thanks for having me.
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reportedly held up to $50,000 in student loan debt while being a strong proponent of cancellation. This is according to filings reviewed by Fox News. AOC's recently released financial disclosures show that she maintained between $15,000 and $50,000 in student loan debt in 2022. In March of 2022, AOC tweeted, now would be a great time to cancel student loan debt take significant climate action and pass voting rights in response to a Marist poll showing Bi President Joe Biden's approval ratings with young adults um, not being quite where he might want them. After the Supreme Court canceled Biden's student debt plan, the Biden administration offered a workaround plan that would provide 12-month, quote, on-ramp to assist borrowers. Fox writes, but AOC insisted that this was not enough, rightly so, in my humble opinion, and suggested Biden suspend interest payments for a year. You are not only a member of Congress, I believe you still have student loans. This plan could take up to a year to take effect. Is there more that he could or should be doing? You know, yes, I, I believe that um, there are several steps that we should be considering as well to go a step beyond. I would like to see interest payments suspended during this time, especially during that 12-month ramp up period. Yeah, so I, I saw um, Fox News and some people calling attention to this. Mm -hmm. I, I, I guess the Post. maybe the angle is to, it's not really hypocrisy is not the charge. It's, I guess it's quite the personally, personally profiting maybe from a policy mm -hmm. that you're advocating for. Um, you know, people could make what they want of it. I, as you know, utterly oppose this policy. It doesn't matter to me whether she has the debt or not. I just disagree with her on the policy. Yeah, the argument here was difficult for me to follow. I think the implication is that somehow she's um, advocating for this policy in a self-serving way. Yeah. She only cares about student debt cancellation because she has student debt. Um, there's a couple problems with that. One, at the, her publicly available $175,000 a year congressional salary, she quite literally does not qualify for Biden's student debt policy. And so this really, I think, highlights high income. Extreme, how extremely, um, I'm sorry, stupid so many of the critics have been who have such a uh, inadequate understanding of what Biden's policy even is that they would believe that AOC is even eligible. Because of people like that, this is a means-tested policy. So yes, it completely excludes someone who earns as much as AOC does. You would have to earn under $125,000 as a year to be uh, qualified for that. Moreover, the policy only cancels up to $10,000 a year unless you were a Pell Grant recipient, Pell Grant recipients being among the most needy applicants to college. AOC does not appear to have been a Pell Grant recipient, but even so, her $50,000 of student debt that's predicted by the um, uh, Washington Post and Fox News here, uh, would not, this, would, this policy would not even wipe out her own debt. So the argument is that she is doggedly pursuing a policy that would help her somewhat, but wouldn't help her nearly as much as Donald Trump's policy, which was to suspend the student debt into this moratorium that Joe Biden is now lifting. Now, the last argument seems to be that somehow her holding on to this debt, despite having a good salary in Congress, is evidence of her own kind of financial negligence. People have been saying, why does she have this much money, um, as outstanding, debt outstanding, if she has been working at this congressional salary now for uh, since 2018. Well, what's notable is that she worked at that salary for two years before COVID hit and the moratorium kicked in, at which point 
the payment obligation stops. So I think most people just stop paying their debt. Why would you pay instead of collect, saving your money, being able to use your money, invest your money, get interest on your money, use your money in much smarter ways and save it up so that when the moratorium ends, you're in a good position to pay it off without having to earn those interest payments. And what's really telling here is I think that a lot of Americans have been able to make a, a big dent in their student loan debt, not literally paying it, but saving up to make a big dent when the moratorium stops precisely because they haven't been having to pay you serious interest rates all this time. When you are paying interest rates, you're in a position where even though you are regularly paying thousands of dollars a month in some cases on your loans, the principal is just not going down. And perhaps if you've never had a six-figure student loan burden the way that AOC likely did going to Boston University, which is $40,000 a year approximately <laughs> when she graduated, then you wouldn't have had the experience of paying $18,000 a year on your student debt and only paying $5,000 to the principal. But I suspect that is the situation that AOC was in, especially since she was a low-income worker prior to joining Congress, yeah. who likely was not able to pay the thousands of dollars um, to her principal that someone like myself, who was on a 10-year repayment program out of law school, was able to pay. It sounds like an outrageous scam, and you should not take out that amount of money to go to Boston University. And but here we are. Lots of people do. Um, they should not. And I utterly oppose this policy, as I've said numerous yeah. times. One well, other interesting aspect of this is that agree to the moratorium back. is lifting um, next month. And uh, it's it seems that 56 percent of student loan borrowers um, are going to have to make uh, a really hefty choice between their debt and buying groceries. We've talked at length about how about half the country is unable to respond to a $400 emergency. The average student debt payment is more than that. So in a world where Joe Biden is making this argument that Bidenomics really worked and that people are able to pay their bills and inflation is down and they're not facing the same kind of struggles that they were, let's say, a year ago, because of his own policy choices negotiating the end of the moratorium in exchange um, for uh, the debt ceiling passage uh, about a month ago. Now, a lot of his constituents or potential constituents are going to be faced with a lot of financial hardship. And the question is whether or not they're going to take that out on Joe Biden um, at the polls. I mean, financial hardship in these cases that, again, I'm sorry, is entirely of one's own making. Okay. So there's 44 million Americans who are student debtors, and that will be voting. And whether or not you think it's right or wrong, they have the opportunity to show their displeasure with the policy of the Biden administration by choosing not to vote for Joe Biden and withholding their votes as a consequence of his willingness to gamble their financial future away. And to agree with you, Robbie— Their and, willingness and, and, to gamble their financial okay. future away. Sure. So they don't have to vote for Biden? It's not my problem, and I don't have to subsidize people who— take out a bunch of money and throw it all away at the casino and say, sorry, now I have to pay back this money I willingly took out. That's, That's okay. not my problem. That's, That's not hardworking taxpayers people's problem. Okay. It's not people who have their financial house in order. Right. So my point is that it's Joe Biden's Lots problem. Lots of people get great educations and they work to pay for it and they don't go to Boston University, but they can go to community college or any of the tons of options available where you can get a good education and, and be trained to do a well-paying job and you can be fine. You didn't have to do what AOC did. Lots of people didn't have to do what AOC did. They got themselves in that so, position. So and it is not taxpayers' problem. It's not. So millions of Americans who did go to community colleges, who did go to state colleges, um, and who did go to vocational colleges also have student debt, and they're going to be facing the situation of whether or not they want to vote for Joe Biden. So this is absolutely Joe Biden's problem, and the question is whether or not he's going to suffer electoral consequences for failing 44 well, million Americans in this he could suffer electoral colleges either way. He could suffer them for alienating people who paid back their debts or never got themselves into that position to begin with. 
Polls suggest that the bigger loss for him is the people who are the 44 million debtors, not because this is a policy that is more popular than it is not. It is very interesting to note, though, for vote viewers that missed our conversation with uh, Jill Biden's comms person who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, there was agreement between him and you, Robbie, on this particular point. And I think that really does showcase how out of step the Biden administration is with so many millions of Americans who, again, whatever you think of them, they're irresponsible, bad, horrible, stupid, negligent people, however you want to characterize them, that's the voters. So if the if the pitch to the American voter is you were too stupid and negligent um, to live your life properly, that's a pitch that people can make. But again, as Joe Biden, with democracy on the line and all of the things that Democrats say that they care about. So it looks to me like 47 percent of Americans supported the Biden plan, but just two in five, 39 percent support for giving all the student loan debt. That, that's not my recollection. No, that's what Ipsos polling says. USA Today, Ipso polling from May 2023. I mean, maybe it's popular with the kind of, I mean, he doesn't need to win primary voters, but, you know, to distinguish himself in the Democratic field, I don't know, among the most progressive people, but. All right. If you're a student debtor, uh, are you going to vote for Joe Biden? Let us know, Let us know. In, in the comments. We'll have my rising for you right after this. for Strategic Communications at the National Security Council in the White House, John Kirby, not denying explosive claims from UFO whistleblower David Grush. Let's watch. Uh, David Grush, who sat on a U.S. Air Force panel on UAPs, he says that he was informed of a UAP crash retrieval and reverse en engineering program based on interviewing 40 witnesses over four years. Does such a program exist, and do you believe that the American people deserve to know if it does? I have no information on that uh, to provide for you today, one way or the other. I would just say what I said la last week when I got asked about this. Uh, we obviously take um, the issue of uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon seriously. There's a whole office at the Pentagon that has stood up to analyze the data, collect reports, collate those reports, and forward them up appropriately. Uh, and that's, I think, testament of the fact that, uh, that we know that uh, in some cases, uh, these phenomena have impacted military training, have then impacted military readiness. Kirby also weighed in on President Joe Biden's view of Grush's allegations. If the president didn't believe that the sightings by pilots were serious enough to be, to be considered, he wouldn't have wanted the Pentagon to stand up an office to, to look at this, to analyze the data, to collect reports, to provide a system by which uh, we can collate the information and better figure out what we've got here. But that work's ongoing. Uh, so if, if, you're, if your question is, uh, you know, we, do we think we need to be transparent with the American people? Of course we, we, we need to be as transparent as we can be. But the truth is, Jeremy, we don't have hard and fast answers on these things. So people who are, you know, believers in the UAP community online were celebrating this moment as sort of evidence of the credibility of Grush, that a senior communications official would not take this opportunity to really offer much in the way of skepticism or pushback, but to say that this is something that, you know, pilots have observed, there's some phenomenon happening, we have to find out what it is. 
was considered to be, I think, a real boon for the community, especially after last week and some of the reporting that tended to undermine or perhaps was intended to undermine uh, credibility in Grush because of uh, the FOIA request that came out about him having had some past issues uh, with al alcohol abuse and the like. Right. And I've not seen uh, that story. I don't know that it's changed much of the the certainly not the interest from the you know the community of people who are um, who pay a lot of attention to this issue. It doesn't sound like they're letting up just because of the development that Ken Klippenstein reported on. Um, I, I think it was good of John Kirby not to like take that opportunity to just dismiss all sorts of claims to this. On, on this level, um, because it, it, you know, it, whatever you think about Grush and whether you think what was revealed is relevant, it's still the case that we deserve, the American people, I believe, are entitled to more transparency around this issue, around the claims that not just David Grush, but a lot of other people. There were other people who testified at that hearing. There were other people who were supposed to testify, and apparently, it's been reported, felt worried about doing so. Um, so how can we hear from all of them? I, it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's not going to be the case that every single one of them has some sordid thing in their past that means you can no longer believe them. I just, I doubt that. I don't accept that. Sure. Here's the problem. I don't care about the Grush stuff. What I care about is that we have testimony that there's aliens in uh, their craft in a room somewhere, that someone has seen bodies in a craft. And the questions that I want to see Kirby and others in the administration responding to is, have you connected with those witnesses who have identified where they saw those things, where they saw the aliens, where they saw the craft? Have you gone back to those locations and confirmed the existence of the aliens in the craft? Tell me what scientific tests have been done on the body to confirm that it is extraterrestrial in origin and not a creature or a kind of uh, uh, Victorian era style funhouse uh, sewn together <laughs> monkey and fish to make a fake mermaid kind of a deal, um, and, and and provide some did actual evidence. Did they used to do that to the poor monkeys? They did. There definitely were mer mermen created of composites of animals in a way that I'm sure Peta would not approve of. Um, but you know, at his, like, again, I'm in this I'm in this holding pattern where it's very frustrating. It's almost more frustrating to me to have this acknowledgement by the administration than it would if they were obviously trying to suppress it. And I don't want to read too far into this one way or the other. But just a week ago, we were having all these conversations about how the intelligence agencies didn't really want this to come out, and that's why they leaked these documents to Ken Clippenstein, which of course did not end up to be being the case. That's not how he got all of that information. It was just through a FOIA request of publicly available documents. But he did. But, the but he did ask. He did solicit defense officials he knew for their thoughts on Grush. So yes. it was it was But the narrative was they're they're leaking this information to destroy Grush. The government doesn't right. want you to know about Grush. But well the evidence that we see seems to be that there seems to be a healthy appetite for the government to talk about this and to have us talking about it short of right, actually showing us anything. You so think that's, it's a distraction. Yeah. Because at, at this point, if everyone's happy for us to learn more about it, it's like if I say, I mean, at a certain point, okay, Robbie, I have got aliens back in my apartment. 
and I am willing to have a bunch of high-profile hearings discussing the aliens at my apartment. <laughs> and under no circumstances, I'm going to invite right. you over to see the aliens in my apartment. Like, oh, you really? are the government. Yeah. You are the one that has possession of these things. So either give us a story about how, oh, it was destroyed by an earlier era of government that didn't want you to know the secrets. We would have told you the secrets, but they destroyed it, and I'm sorry, there's no more evidence. Or, 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 or stop with a charade. But we're getting very close to put up or shut up territory. I think we're well me. past that territory. I'm just, right, I'm so sick of being told, oh, we'd like to tell you what this is or where it is, but we need to do it in a secure room. And we can't tell you, we can just tell, you know, the con we can't tell you the people, we can just tell you the congressman in secret. And then we can't tell you who told us that. And, and we can't tell you who's stopping us from telling you. Right. That's an important point. And these witnesses who, you know, there were, there were witnesses who were supposed to testify at the last hearing who didn't. What specifically are they afraid of? Have they faced any real threats? What do they think is going to befall them that is not likely to befall someone like Grush? who has put his neck out there and the other witnesses who were able to testify and come forward. You know, when you're doing journalism and you're making the decision to let people talk anonymously, at very least often there's a lot of contextualization for why it is that they don't want to go on the record or they still work for said senator and they don't want to get fired. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine now. I mean, look, I, I don't, I'm not alleging that Ken or the Intercept Report did anything wrong or inappropriate. I, I can now imagine, and maybe this was always evident, not wanting to come forward and risk, like, you know, scrutiny of your personal life or something. But I mean, that's just what everybody All right. Faces. Well, that's it. How much is it? Is it really yeah. a deep, dark secret that matters and that, you know, you're, you're a hero? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, look at what happened to Julian Assange. Julian Assange has to go through this whole Me, yeah. Me Too trial. He's spent years in prison, you know, in, 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 uh, in constrictive uh, circumstances and in prisons, you know. For someone that he believed in, and I'm not saying everyone has to have that level of courage, but I don't think you can simultaneously say these are amazing heroes and we got to offer them protection and da -da -da, at the same time that they stay completely anonymous. And also, they were scheduled to testify, and then last minute decided not to, which suggests to me that yeah. you know, were you really going to do it? So you were on the on the fence. So what can we do to get you over the fence? It'd be really great if we could get more information on why exactly that happened. I'd like to know. Yes, even if you're not coming forward, what was motivating right. that? Just give us some Who? more context. Who? Who? Who should you be afraid of? Name names. Because sometimes. Uh, yeah. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and you can protect yourself by naming the person who would otherwise cause you harm and make it more difficult for them to, to seek revenge on you in those ways. Well, The Hill is hosting a special UFO UAP event later today, so please tune into The Hill's The Truth Is Out There UFOs and National Security event today at 2 p.m. You can watch it here on our YouTube page, also at thehill.com. You can see it on Twitter and Facebook. And that actually does it for us for the week. Tomorrow, you can catch Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey for Rising Fridays. And we will be back with you next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We've been informed we have some homemade ziti waiting for us <laughs> in the lunchroom. So I'm excited for that. Take care. Bye-bye.